Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 13th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are really just going to make an introduction to the protocols of the learned elders of Satan. This is the Protocols of Satan, Part 8. I understand that a lot of our listeners have been waiting for this for a long time. We left this series 10 months ago. Tonight we will offer an introduction to our presentation of the Protocols themselves. We will offer some new commentary and recap some of the things which we have already discussed in this series, because it has been so long since we left it. To date, we have presented seven parts of our Protocols of Satan, which were really only designed to establish their authenticity and to refute all of the refutations. Then because we felt that we needed a firm historical basis for an understanding of the protocols, we presented 11 parts of a series titled The Jews in Medieval Europe, and we feel that it is important to understand that material before we continued with the presentation of the actual protocols. But for now, what we have here we hope serves as our final introduction to the protocols themselves. People would think that this introduction is taken forever, and it has, but we feel that it's been necessary. The alleged scholar, I'm going to call him an alleged scholar, David Duke, has labeled the protocols of the learned elders of Zion a literary fantasy along the lines of George Orwell's 1984. Duke's thesis as to how the protocols came into existence merely regurgitates the long discredited defensive Jewish claims. His comparison to 1984, however, is downright childish. George Orwell rather astutely saw what was already on the horizon, having observed the results of Bolshevism in the East and the trends of liberalism in the West, and only then had he rather prodigiously depicted one possible result of the established political trends, some of which we now see and some of which have not yet materialized, and of course may never materialize. But the protocols are quite different, because when they were written, there was nothing in the world like them that was already in place. Therefore, as the design which they describe came to be plainly manifest in the world within a scant several decades of their publication, we should distinguish them as being representative of a definite plan for the undermining of society by those who would benefit from that undermining. Therefore, as crudely as they were written, the protocols are real. It is David Duke who is a fiction, 
He's the fake. He may be good at explaining Jewish power in society today, but the actual depth of his historical inquiry is severely wanting. Duke claims that it is unimportant to find out who actually wrote the protocols, and with that, we would generally agree. It does not matter whether they represent an arrogant boastfulness or a prescient warning. Duke also claims that whether the that whether small parts of the protocols appeared in the works of Machiavelli is irrelevant. However, while it is evident that some of the material in the protocols is a reflection of the political philosophy of Machiavelli, it is much plainer that much of the material is found in the dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu by French attorney and civil servant Maurice Jolie, who was also a Mason and member of the Paris Commune before the French Revolution. But as we have seen at great length here from Nestor Webster and others in earlier segments of our own series here on the Protocols, just as importantly, elements of the Protocols appear in many of the writings of the other secret societies of the 19th century in Europe, in writings both Jewish and not Jewish, as well as in the writings of the Bolsheviks. Since the design in the protocols calls for the destabilization of society so that it may be restructured in a manner favoring those who aspired to participate in its subversion, this is indeed significant. And, since this has indeed been accomplished to a great degree, we can see the definite plan that the authors of the destabilization had announced to us in advance. The real problem is that we, we meaning white Christians collectively, accepted the enemy's denials of the plan, even as it was being executed in front of our faces. Most of us continue in denial, preferring our own comfort, and the authors of the protocols understood that as well. Furthermore, the Protocols are not a plan outlining how the authors would aspire to take over society or the world as it is known. Rather, we see the Protocols as a plan for society as the authors were already assured that they had won the victory and that they had the power to bring it to fruition. So the Protocols inform us how they are going to keep power and not be threatened. In fact, in 1543, Martin Luther testified that the Jew had already boasted of controlling Germany. In chapter 10 of his treatise on the Jews and their lies, the Jews already understood that. They understood the power of their control of finance and usury. Where speaking of the Jews, Martin Luther said in that chapter in part, They let us work in the sweat of our brow to earn money and property, while they sit behind the stove, idle the time away, fart and roast pears. They stuff themselves, guzzle, guzzle, 
and live in luxury and ease from our hard-earned goods. With their accursed usury, they hold us and our property captive. Moreover, they mock and deride us, because we work and let them play the role of lazy squires at our expense and in our land. Thus they are our masters, and we are their servants, with our property, our sweat, and our labor. That was in 1543. It might sound like it was in 1972, but it was in 1543. In Luther's day, control of Germany was was control of nearly all of Europe, since Germany was, under Charles V especially, the crown jewel of the Holy Roman Empire, which covered nearly all of Europe. In fact, in 1879, the German journalist Wilhelm Marr had written a book titled The Victory of Judaism over Germanism, viewed from a non-religious point of view. And he was rather late to the game when he realized that it was already over. This was over 30 years before the protocols were published in any language. Here we will read a passage from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, Book 1, Chapter 11 written about 20 years after the protocols were published. As long as the Jew has not succeeded in mastering over other peoples, he is forced to speak their language, whether he likes it or not. But the moment that the world would become the slave of the Jew, it would have to learn some other language. Esperanto, for example, so that by this means the Jew could dominate all the more easily. And we must interject that today the world is speaking English, which may be to our advantage as Americans. Most of my listeners, most of my listeners are Americans or Australians, Canadians, and Englishmen. But that is only because the Jew decided in the 17th century to use England as the pace as his base for world conquest, rather than Germany, France, or Holland, after being ejected from Spain and Portugal. So Hitler continues, How much the whole existence of this people is based on a permanent falsehood is proved in a unique way by the protocols of the elders of Zion, which are so violently repudiated by the Jews. With groans and moans, the Frankfurter Zeitung, which was a prominent Jewish newspaper of the time, repeats again and again that these are forgeries. This alone is evidence in favor of their authenticity. What many Jews unconsciously wish to do here wish to do is here clearly set forth. It is not necessary to ask out of what Jewish brain these revelations sprang, but what is of vital interest is that they disclose, with an almost terrifying precision, the mentality and methods of action characteristic of the Jewish people, and these writings expound in all their various directions the final aims towards which the Jews are striving.
The study of real happenings, however, is the best way of judging the authenticity of those documents. If the historical developments which have taken place within the last few centuries be studied in the light of this book, meaning the protocols, we shall understand why the Jewish press incessantly repudiates and denounces it. For the Jewish peril will be stamped out the moment the general public come into possession of that book and understand it. And to our disadvantage, the public can read it all they want, but most of them will never understand it. And here we must interject that Adolf Hitler gave white Europeans far too much credit. As a whole, they simply do not seem to have the degree of intelligence and discernment that he had perceived in them. And history proves that over and again. Again, Hitler continues, In order to get to know the Jew properly, it is necessary to study the road which he has been following among the other peoples during the last few centuries. One example will give will suffice to give a clear insight here, since his career has been the same at all epochs. Just as the people at whose expense he has lived have remained the same, for the purposes of making the requisite analysis, it will be best to mark his progress by stages. For the sake of simplicity, we shall indicate these stages by the letters of the alphabet. And we won't go into them. We will leave Herr Hitler here, where he goes on by giving a synopsis of Jewish activity in Germany from the earliest times, which, relatively speaking, are not actually all that early. However, what is important is that Hitler noticed that the pattern of Jewish behavior has never changed from epoch to epoch. This is where men like David Duke fail miserably. He and most other critics of the protocols look to the records concerning the protagonists of the Old Testament for information which they think explains Jewish activity. But if the ancient Israelites were really Jews, then Joshua would have had them invade the land of Canaan with briefcases and crooked scales rather than with swords and hatchets. Men like Duke love to quote the Talmud in relation to the protocols, but their eyes are too dim to see that the spirit of the Talmud is absolutely contrary to the spirit of the Old Testament writings, and the two works could not have had similar authors. The ancient pagan Greek historians, such as Diodorus Siculus, recognized that Moses was a great man, a lawgiver, and the founder of civil civilizations, activities which are absolutely contrary to the patterns of behavior exhibited by the Jews. And we documented our statements concerning Theodore Siculus in part four of our presentation of the prophecy of Amos given here in February of 2013. So I won't do it again. The protocols are put into proper historical and biblical perspective only when it is realized that their authors, as well as the authors of the Talmudic literature, which they so closely correlate, are the antagonists of both Old and New Testaments.
and they are not, by any means, the protagonists. But that realization is not convenient for shallow dandies like David Duke. So here we hope to offer a commentary on the protocols from a viewpoint which is not burdened by Jewish lies concerning their own identity. Now, we are going to address another aspect of criticism concerning the protocols. And for that, we will first quote from a paper, or actually a series of lectures, titled, Zionism and Russia, given in 2006 by someone named Valdis Analoskis, which were delivered at a frequently controversial symposium called the Pacifica Forum at the University of Oregon. Concerning the protocols, Analoskis quotes from the work from a work attributed to Alexander Solzhenitsyn and with the sometimes imperfect English grammar of an Eastern European immigrant, he says the following, and I'm quoting Analoskis, The Jews pretend that the protocols were concocted by two members of the secret police of Russia. Suppose, but the whole prophetical program has since turned into reality. How is it possible for two Russian police officials to alter completely the face of the whole world, to overthrow thrones, and to destroy empires? How did they succeed in accumulating all of the gold of the world in their hands, to ruin entire nations, and to muzzle the press, I guess before they owned it? Today, yes, many people do think the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is anti-Semitic hate literature and a fraud. But Nobel Prize winning novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote that the book exhibits the mind of genius. Pretty good for a hoax, would you say? The difficulty of the Protocols is an uncanny dissonance between its uncouth language and deep social and religious thought. It is a rude parody-like rendering of a satanic, subtle, and well-thought-out plan, wrote Solzhenitsyn in a 1966 book published in 2001 in Russian in an analysis of the protocols. I won't attempt to pronounce the Russian title of the book. The protocols, and now Analauskas is quoting Solzhenitsyn, the protocols show a blueprint of a social system. Its design is well above abilities of an ordinary mind, including that of its publisher, referring ostensibly to Sergei Nihilus. It is a dynamic process of two stages, of destabilization, increasing freedom and liberalism, which is terminated in social cataclysm, and on the second stage, new hierarchical restructuring of society takes place. It is more complicated than a nuclear bomb. It could be a stolen and distorted plan designed by a mind of genius. Its putrid style of an anti-Semitic grubby brochure 
intentionally obscures the great strength of thought and insight. Referring to the publisher of the protocol, Solzhenitsyn is evidently speaking of Sergei Nihilus, who published them in Russian in 1905. The word intentionally in that passage is in brackets in the original, but seems to have belonged to Solzhenitsyn. Analysis continues by stating that Solzhenitsyn is aware of the faults of the protocols. And he quotes him further. Its style is that of a filthy leaflet. The powerful line of thought is broken and fragmented, mixed up with ill-smelling incantations and psychological blunders. The system described is not necessarily connected with the Jews. It could be purely Masonic or whatever, Solzhenitsyn evidently not understanding the ties of the Masons to the Jews. While it's strongly anti-Semitic current, is not an organic part of the design. Solzhenitsyn, and Alaskas continues, Solzhenitsyn makes a textual experiment, removes words, Jews, Goyim, and conspiracy, and finds many disturbing ideas. He concludes, the text demonstrates impressive foresight on the two systems of society, the Western and the Soviet one. And of course, before Solzhenitsyn's time, and before the time of the Soviets, we're speaking of the Western liberalism of Montesquieu and the tyranny, the tyrannical form of government proposed by Machiavelli, or favored by Machiavelli. And Solzhenitsyn concludes... While a strong thinker could possibly predict the development of the West in 1901 under the, the Montesquieu half of the equation, how could he grasp the Soviet future? There is no doubt that the Soviet system was inspired by Jews. It was designed by Jews and it was implemented by Jews. As for Machiavelli and Montesquieu, we see one more artificial dichotomy by which Christians have been entrapped. To continue with Analauskas, Solzhenitsyn braved the Soviet regime, dared to write and publish the mammoth Archipelago Gulag. That's backwards from the way we usually state it, but that's the way that Analauskas evidently wrote it an indictment of the Soviet repression. But even he stalled and did not publish his research of the protocols. He asked it to be published after his death only, and it was printed against his will in a very small number of copies in 2001. The protocols identify the moving force of the New World Order with a powerful group of extremely chauvinist, manipulative, and domination-obsessed Jewish supremacist leaders. The leaders, according to the protocols, despise ordinary community members. They utilize and support anti-Semitism as the means to keep their lesser brethren, innocent 
These are Analaskis' words. We don't believe there are any innocent Jews. Innocent, ordinary folk of Jewish origin, enthralled to their rule. The leaders are described as pathological goy-haters, bent on destroying culture and traditions of other nations while preserving their own. Their goal is to create world government and rule the homogenized and globalized world. And we would assert that it is rather natural for the so-called innocent, ordinary folk of Jewish origin to follow along the same paths of treachery outlined by their rabbis. They've been doing it without qualm for 5,000 years. Not very many white Christians would naturally support Sodom and Gomorrah, or the Jews would not have had to work so hard to force them to accept it. And continuing with Analaskis, their aims and intentions are stated in extremely contrarian and obnoxious ways. Solzhenitsyn concluded that no sane person would deliver his favorite ideas in such a self-demeaning and self-defeating way. We extract gold from their blood and tears, quoting from the more brutal passages in the protocols. Our power is based on workers' hunger. Revolutionaries are our human tools. Brutish minds of Goyim are, in his opinion, words ascribed to the Jews by their enemies. A Jew would rather put such ideas in an oblique way he felt. That's the key words by Analoskis there, is that Sultanitan felt that way. It's not necessarily true. Analaskis continues by saying, well, it is not a watertight argument. Some people speak in an oblique way. Others prefer a direct one. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the Jewish state, for example, coined an equally arrogant maxim. Who cares what the Goyim say? What matters is what the Jews do. This sentence is an almost direct quote from the protocols. The protocols subscribe to the elders a saying, each Jewish victim is worth, in the sight of God, a thousand goyim. This line, a pinnacle of arrogance, is not a vain invention of an anti-Semite. Two ministers of Sharon's government, Uri Landau and Evit Lieberman, demanded to kill 1,000 Palestinian goyim for each Jewish victim. A Jewish extremist at a rally for the Jewish Temple Mount in 2002 called called for each Jew to kill 1,000 Palestinian goyim. Apparently, some of the ideas of the protocols are not foreign to some Jews. The late Israeli scholar, that's also an oxymoron, I'm sorry, but that's Analaskis' statement. The late Israeli scholar, Israel Shahak, and and an American Jewish writer, Norton Mezvinsky, present in their book, Jewish Fundamentalism in Israel, a plethora of sayings by Jewish rabbis that wouldn't be out of place in the protocols. 
The difference, and he quotes, the difference between a Jewish soul and the souls of non-Jews is greater and deeper than the difference between a human soul and the souls of cattle. Shahak and Mezvinsky proved the rage of the Jewish chauvinists does not differentiate between Palestinians, Arabs, and Goyim in general. In other words, whatever happened to Palestinians could happen to any Gentile community standing in the way of the Jews. And though they claim that the protocols are forgeries, the definition of forgery is an unauthorized copy of the original, and that's not exactly true. It, it's a factoid that's often repeated. A forgery is also something which is created in somebody else's name, which the person whose name is used did not create. That's another definition of a forgery that's often forgotten in relation to the protocols. And though they claim that the protocols are forgeries and have spent a fortune to suppress and discredit them, even making it illegal to possess them in some countries, they have never attempted to address or answer the real question that the existence of such a document raises. Have they fulfilled the protocols while claiming they did not write them? And Analaskis answers his own question simply by saying, yes. Then, what is the difference whether they wrote them or not? Numerous scholars have noted the correspondence between the prophecies of the protocols and their fulfillment. We can see the protocols being carried out word by word in the world power the Jews at the top have achieved. These Jews at the top, the ones who are conspirators against all of mankind today, and always have gained power and maintain it through world domination and control of all means of communication, what these Jewish power brokers have attained today is too glaring to be set aside or deemed as merely coincidental. Indeed, if the protocols would have no relation to reality, they probably wouldn't be as popular as they are. Have you ever noticed that protocol deniers never attack the tenets that are actually being laid out in the protocols, only their existence? As already stated, their authenticity cannot be proven either. It would be best to stay clear of theories and simply look at events. Events are plain enough and speak loudly enough. One may shrug off the protocols as forgeries, but one cannot deny that their prophecies are being fulfilled. If the protocols are fraudulent, I would like to hear them explain. This is still quoting Analaskis, and we will for another page or so. They aren't like, say, the writings of Nostradamus, which are so vague and convoluted they can be interpreted to mean anything, and that we would certainly agree with. The protocols, whatever they are, are happening. That is impossible to deny. We talk about it because there is nothing written today which more clearly explains current events. One who has digested the protocols cannot look out into the world without seeing the fulfillment of that much maligned document.
Having read the protocols many, many times, I still can't give a truly plausible opinion as to whether they're genuine or fraudulently authored. But I can honestly say that whoever the authors may have been, they were prophetically accurate. For spurious shots in the air to hit a target so many times on center seems little short of miraculous. Therefore, my point of view is, yes, that the question of who wrote it is not all that important. What is important is what is is that it is clearly seen as having transpired. A person would have to be well-nigh brain-dead not to realize the awesome success of some brilliantly organized purpose in bringing all men to the state that they are in today. The document itself is amazing in its theoretical design. If it were simply created for show, it was created by genius, since in it there is seen clear understanding of how human beings are manipulated. On February 17, 1921, an American, I'm going to reword this a little because the grammar is terrible. You can see the original in our notes when the program is posted at, at Christagenia. On February 17, 1921, a very influential American newspaper of the time, the New York World, published an interview with Henry Ford in the course of which he was asked, Is your belief that the Jews are endeavoring to control the world based in any degree on the so-called protocols, said to have been formulated by the elders of Zion? You know, of course, that these have been denounced as forgeries or inventions. Do you believe that they are genuine? Ford replied, The only statement I care to make about the protocols is that they fit in with what is going on. They are 16 years old and have fitted the world situation up to this time. They fit it now. Indeed, they do. And I'm sure that was not long before The International Jew was published. As we have seen, the protocols were first published by Russian in Russian by Sergei Nihilus in 1905. So Henry Ford evidently had a fair understanding of their history in 1920. Continuing with Analauskas, so even if you don't believe in the authenticity of this remarkable document, one thing you can't deny is their fulfillment. You can toss the protocols out the window if you want, but you can't deny the fact that everything they plotted, planned, and predicted has either already happened or is happening now. The ideas of power development depicted in it move on our contemporary stage play the parts foretold, and produce the events foreseen. This is the greatest proof of their authenticity that they are now fulfilled. Not only does this document illuminate the reason for the massive success of international Zionism, but it also provides profound insight into every single political situation of the last century and sheds great light on much of what has transpired for the last hundred years on the world stage. Stunningly, virtually everything planned for and predicted in the protocols has provably come to pass.
This document is as pertinent today as it was when it first came to light in 1905. The protocols at their penning and discovery looks, yes, kind of fishy to me, according to Analauskas, these are still his words, but since the Jews seem to be following them, intentionally or not, it makes the protocols legitimate by default. And that's the end of our lengthy quote from Valdis Analauskas. In the balance of his lecture, which follows what we've just quoted, Analauskas continues by citing the same comments from Adolf Hitler on the protocols that we have already cited this evening. But then he goes on to state that now, if Adolf Hitler sounds too extreme for you, here I have various quotations from writings of a great variety of people, both Jews and Gentiles. And he goes on to give a number of similar assessments of the protocols, recent and not so recent, from sources both Jewish and not Jewish. Many other writers in various print and internet media have described Sultanitan's assessment of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion very similarly to what we have just seen here. But doing so, they nearly all cite an article by a Jew named Israel Shamir, which was entitled, The Elders of Zion and the Masters of Discourse. Wanting to avoid trusting the Jew as a source, we found these lectures on Zionism by Valdus Analauskas, a Lithuanian, which are quite interesting and which we will look into further as time affords. Of course, it cannot escape our notice that he himself quotes many Jews, but has evidently done so only to illustrate his points concerning what the Jews have said about themselves. So the reason for quoting Jews is just as important as whether or not the Jews are quoted. Analauskas has also done lectures on the Frankfurt School and other Jewish influences in the West. But we do not agree with all of his conclusions, or with all of those of Sultanitan. But the matter of disagreement is usually only one of perspective. First, the protocols are not prophecy. The protocols do not contain any prophecy but rather they express aspirations for the fulfillment of a definite plan. The plan was successfully executed, but that does not make it prophecy, as Satan had boasted to Christ on a hilltop in Palestine, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it, speaking of his power over all of the kingdoms of the world. So we have the protocols as a statement and a boast from those who knew that they already had the power to bring them into fruition. Furthermore, it does not really matter who wrote the protocols. Earlier in this series, we had already discussed much of the speculation and some of the theories concerning their authors. And it does not even matter that whoever let them into the public seems to have done so purposely. 
But what does matter is that they originated in the same places where the plans that they illustrate had already been put into motion. This should have become apparent to us as as we reviewed the work of Nesta Webster, seeing that so many of the objectives of the protocols, as well as statements found in the protocols, were circulated not only in the writings of the Bolshevik Jews, but much earlier in the literature of the 19th century secret societies, and many of them long before Maurice Jolie's famous Dialogue in Hell was even published. In fact, in the preface to his publication of the Protocols, which we shall discuss a little further on this evening, Boris Brassall, if indeed he is the author of The Protocols and World Revolution, published in 1920, had written the following. There is not. And in the nature of the case, there can hardly be any direct evidence as to the authenticity of the protocols. There is, however, a considerable body of facts having a bearing upon this question which the publishers of this book put before the reader, leaving him to draw his own conclusions. The facts to which we refer may be roughly grouped under three heads. First, there is a remarkable similarity between the policies of destruction outlined in the protocols and the actual measures of destruction put into effect by the Bolshevist regime in Russia. And there is evidence that this regime is under the control of Jewish leaders. That was in 1920 that this was published. Second, there is also a striking parallelism between certain passages in the protocols and the statements of recognized Jewish leaders, both religious and political, appearing in their published writings and speeches. And finally, certain Jewish activities outside of Russia coincide in a remarkable degree with certain parts of the protocols. As we proceed through the protocols themselves, we hope to put on display the evidence spoken of here by Boris Bressall and add to it from other sources, all of which certainly does establish that the protocols are genuine. Almost exactly a year ago, in two days, it'll be a year, August 15th, we presented the first of seven parts of the series, which we concluded in October of last year. In those first seven parts, we discussed the appearance and early publications of the protocols themselves, and we hope to have illustrated the controversies and disputes concerning the protocols, which arose shortly after they were published. Of course, we could not fully elucidate the original source of the protocols beyond speculation, but their veracity is proven by their very existence at a time when the plans for society which they outline were on the verge of being put into effect by those same parties who are credited with having created them. Making that exhibition, we hope to have already demonstrated in great degree, just why 
and how. The protocols are legitimate documents and not so-called forgeries. We hope to have demonstrated just how the protocols are indeed a product of Jewry and represent the collective objectives of the people named as their authors as they had already acquired the ability. They had already, this is important to understand this, acquired the ability to subvert Christian society. The protocols are not a prophecy, they are a boast. So while we discuss the original publication of the Protocols by Sergei Nihilus, we made an exhibition of the booklet, The Jewish World Conspiracy, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion Before the Court in Bern, by Dr. Karl Bergemeister in 1938. In that booklet, Bergemeister defended the authenticity of the protocols against some of the evidence presented at the Bern trial of 1934 and 35, where a lawsuit had been tried against certain Swiss politicians because they had used the protocols as propaganda in their campaigns. Following that, as we have already discussed here, we presented material from Chapter 10 of Nesta Webster's book, World Revolution. We also quoted her work on secret societies. Webster had demonstrated that much of the underlying political philosophy found in the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion was actually expressed before the Protocols were ever published and by many key figures in the European secret societies of the 18th and 19th centuries. Doing this, Webster had compared some of the writings of Adam Weishaupt, Piccolo Tigre, Mikhail Bakunin, Vladimir Lenin, and other revolutionaries to statements that had been made in the Protocols. In the course of this, we are confident that we exposed all of the protests made against the authenticity of the Protocols by Catherine Rodziwill, Philip Graves, and others, protests which the Jews use as their defense against accusations concerning the Protocols to this, to this very day. We also examined the Protocols of Jolie, which attempts to rebut the idea, which the Jews also trumpet today, that the Protocols are simply an extract of a work of fiction published in the mid-19th century by the French writer Maurice Jolie, called The Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, or Montesquieu. I'm probably butchering that name every time I say it. I'm sorry. I don't do French. I hardly do English. It was Philip... It was Philip Graves who supposedly discovered the many parallels between Jolie's book and the Protocols. Doing this, we said that the premise of the Protocols of Jolie amounts to this, that the Rothschilds had been responsible for having had the Protocols written, and that verbatim passages from Jolie's dialogues were intentionally included so that if the Protocols were discovered, they could make the claim of forgery, which they did. In any event, 
The included passages reflecting the philosophy of Machiavelli also agreed with the political philosophy espoused by the Protocols. Then, not quite agreeing with the Protocols of Jolie, in our own conclusions we said the following. Jolie was a French lawyer and a mason who worked for ten years for the French government. Like Gojka, was allegedly only a postal worker, but was also employed by the Prussian secret police as a writer, agent provocateur, and forger of letters. He wrote several books of a political nature. Both men were within the purview of the Masonic lodges and secret societies of the time, and their writings reflect the literature of those secret societies. None of this can be merely coincidental, and is Goethe, a German writer, also, well, I should probably not say it backwards, there were also writings from the Protocols, which were very similar to things in Goethe's book, in a novel that he produced, long before, I believe several decades before Jolie. And it's not a coincidence. Both men were tied up with the Masonic lodges. Then, continuing my conclusions concerning the Protocols of Jolie, then, where the Protocols of Jolie insists that the Rothschilds were solely responsible for having the Protocols written and purposely copied from Jolie so that they could claim forgery in case they were detected, we further concluded. So this is the premise of the Protocols of Jolie, but it cannot be said that the Rothschilds are the sole beneficiaries of the plan of the Protocols, or of the emerging world Jewish supremacism. But the article does at great length demonstrate that Jews collectively had been the sole beneficiaries of this system to subvert Christendom, which has been decried as a forgery for a hundred years now, but all the while has been executed in full before our very eyes. It also shows at length that all attempts to discredit somehow discredit the protocols were themselves fraudulent and in a few ways which we ourselves did not consider. So the protocols of Jolie does have some merit, but their conclusions aren't quite right. And what they say about the protocols being from Jolie or copying from Jolie are not quite right because their writings in the protocols are found throughout the writings of the secret societies, not only those of Jolie. The fault of the protocols of Jolie writers is that they are putting the Rothschilds before the Jews rather than the Jews before the Rothschilds. The protocols originated in the secret societies and apparently the Rothschilds were their most successful adherents. However, many other Jewish families had been in their league and they could not have done it all by themselves. The protocols are real, and the deception on the part of world Jewry to subvert and destroy Christendom has been executed in plain sight. 
The protocols are successful in that their authors have successfully done what they said they would do, use the Masonic Lodges and secret societies as their dupes to accomplish what they have done. We see plainly that in all of the lodges, we see that plainly, in all of the lodges and civic organizations of today. In summary, we believe that Nesta Webster successfully demonstrated that the ideas expressed by the protocols were found in all the writings of the secret societies before Jolie wrote his book, and Jolie being involved with those societies, and being a lawyer and a politician himself, was very familiar with the concepts, the issues, and the plans which were produced from them before he wrote his book. And finally, in the last segment of our series, we discussed Henry Ford, the Dearborn Independent, the publication of The International Jew, and the lawsuit which is popularly described as having been initiated by the Jews against Ford for his own exposition in the Protocols of the protocols. In truth, the lawsuit was only filed by a particular Jew for particular statements which were published about that one Jew. And it was never about the international Jew or the Dearborn Independent. While the Jews also claim a victory there, that too is a spurious claim, and Ford never recanted or renounced any of that work. Henry Ford never actually apologized for his anti-Semitism in spite of the claims of the Jews. Now at this point in our presentations of the protocols, we realized that we needed to lay some groundwork, a foundation for understanding the degree of influence which the Jews had gained in medieval society, and also in the so-called secret societies, and especially Freemasonry. Without understanding these things, there is no basis for understanding how the Jews had gotten themselves into the position to execute the plan set forth in the protocols. We hope to have done that, or at least to have done most of what we set out to accomplish, since we do not yet consider that endeavor to be complete. In our recent series of 11 presentations entitled, the Jews in Medieval Europe, and hopefully there will be more. There, we first employed a chapter of a book by E. Michael Jones, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History, to demonstrate how the Jews were able to subvert society in Spain and in Portugal, and how, when they gained power over those predominantly Christian nations, they acted in the same manner and with the same attitude that is exhibited 500 years later in the Protocols. And hopefully we will draw on that exhibition again in our coming discussions of the Protocols. Then we discussed the Reuschland affair at great length, in spite of the fact that we had already discussed it two years ago from a slightly different perspective in our series on Martin Luther, which is another ongoing series.
which we have not yet finished and one day hope to finish. There are so many dragons and we have only one sword. We did this in order to elucidate just how the Jews had co-opted the emerging sciences by convincing certain influential Christian scholars that their Jewish Kabbalah was an authority in the studies of mathematics, alchemy, the forerunner to chemistry, astrology, the forerunner to astronomy, and other fields. Convincing Johann Reuschlin of the value of the Kabbalah, Reuschlin fought to preserve the Jewish writings of the Kabbalah and the Talmud at a time when many traditional Christian authorities understood their danger and openly sought to destroy them. Even Martin Luther had later joined that cause in 1543, when he said that all the books of the Jews should be burned, and all their property confiscated, and the naked, disgusting Jews put out in the fields to see if they would ever do any honest work. But Reuschlin, while losing his own personal battle, nevertheless managed to forestall the destruction of the Jewish books, and eventually the Jews prevailed. They never had their books burned. In the closing years of his life, Reuschlin was restored to an academic position. He was greatly admired by many young humanists, and he promoted the Kabbalah to many younger minds, both directly and through his many writings. And after Reuschlin, we made exhibitions of the life of John Dee, the English scholar who followed in Reuschlin's footsteps and popularized the Kabbalah in England. And while we did not discuss it explicitly, it should have become evident as we discussed the life of John Dee that many of the German scholars had also followed Reuschlin. By the 17th century, the Kabbalah was the authority of the emerging sciences, and the Jewish rabbis were its masters. We had also seen quite vividly that great numbers of these medieval scholars were also occultists, while astrologists developed tools to track the movements of stars and planets, advancing the science of what we now know as astronomy. They also believed that they could foretell the future and the destiny of men's lives by that same means, while alchemists studied the material world in a manner which led to the science of chemistry. They also sought to make gold out of lesser-valued substances, and their studies were driven by greed. While the study of Hebrew gave men a better understanding of the scriptures, we have seen that men such as Reuschlin and Dee also thought that they could use it to harness the creative powers of God, or at least to gain control of the world through the ability to issue commandments to the angels of God. 
It was through the acceptance of the Kabbalah that generations of young Christian scholars became Judaized. And that process was in full swing as the stonemasons' lodges became transformed into something quite different as homes for the emerging speculative masonry. In that same series, we had exhibited that Freemasonry is Jewish in all of its stated objectives and also in its myths and in its rituals. It corrals Christians into pursuing Jewish objectives not only related to Zionism but also related to the ultimate Jewish goal of world Jewish supremacy. And we had illustrated how the Stone Mages Lodges of Scotland, in the time of the famous King James, were opened to non-Masons, who were called speculative Masons. These followed James to England, as he became the king there, and they followed his sons to France, as they lived there in exile. These lodges of speculative masons became known as Freemasons and were soon filled with Judaized scholars who had long been engaged in the studies of the Kabbalah and the emerging sciences which had already been heavily influenced by Kabbalists which we had seen discussing the legacies of Johann Reuschlin, John Dee, and the many men who followed after them, some of whom we also discussed, such as the German polymath, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, and the Swedish theologians, John Burius and Emanuel Swedenborg. We have not yet fully elucidated the connections between and the transformation from late 17th century Freemasonry to 18th century English Freemasonry to 18th century French and German Freemasonry, which were much more militant and revolutionary. However, one day soon we hope to do that. However, it is quite clear in the early history and throughout the past few centuries that Freemasonry has been a chief vehicle through which the political objectives of world Jewry have been accomplished, and it is still a tool in the hand of international Jewry today. So it should be no wonder that Nesta Webster found some of the precepts of the protocols in the writings of early Freemasons. And it should be no wonder that the Freemason, Maurice Jolie, was so intimately familiar with the precepts later found in the protocols. So now, I need a drink, I'm sorry. So... So now, we would assert that our recent series, The Jews in Medieval Europe, is also a necessary prerequisite to understanding the presentation which we hope to make of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. If one is not already familiar with the history which we have attempted to illustrate, and in spite of the fact 
that we do not yet think that series is finished. We do think we have presented sufficient material so that we can begin to present the protocols themselves. Of course, our listeners may have already caught on to the fact that this evening's presentation is only meant to be yet another long introduction, and we will not be getting on to the actual text of the protocols so quickly. Perhaps that'll happen in the next segment. There are two translations of the protocols available to us, and of course both of them are from the Russian language edition of Sergei Nihilus. From what we have observed, the translation by Victor E. Marsden, which is the one that we ourselves have posted at the Mein Kampf project at Christagenia, that is the one which is most commonly found on the internet. The following is from the preface to Marsden's translation, which actually wasn't published for three years until three years after his death. The author of this translation of the famous protocols, Marsden did not write the preface. The author of this translation of the famous protocols was himself a victim of the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution. He had lived for many years in Russia and was married to a Russian lady. Among his other activities in Russia, he had been for a number of years a Russian correspondent of the Morning Post, which was a conservative British paper, a position which he occupied when the revolution broke out and his vivid descriptions of events in Russia will still be in the recollection of many of the readers of that journal. Naturally, he was singled out for the anger of the Soviet. On the day that Captain Kromi was murdered by the Jews, Victor Marsden was arrested and thrown into the Peter Paul prison, expecting every day to have his name called out for execution. Now, we must interject that Captain Cromie was a British naval intelligence officer in St. Petersburg at the start of the Bolshevik Revolution. Both he and the Peter Paul prison, where the Jews were holding many political prisoners, are frequently mentioned in the Russian number one reports, which we also have posted at the Mein Kampf project at Christagenia. And in fact, we were the first, thank you, Gerald Mosley, we were the first to ever have them published on the internet. The preface continues. This, however, he escaped. And eventually, he was allowed to return to England very much of a wreck in bodily health. However, he recovered under treatment and the devoted care of his wife and friends. One of the first things he undertook, as soon as he was able, was this translation of the protocols. Mr. Marsden was eminently well qualified for the work. His intimate acquaintance with Russian, with Russia, Russian life and the Russian language on the one hand, and his mastery of a terse literary English style on the other, placed him in a position of advantage which few others could claim, 
The consequence is that we have in his version an eminently readable work, and though the subject matter is somewhat formless, Mr. Marsden's literary touch reveals the thread running through the 24 protocols. It may be said with truth that this work was carried out at the cost of Mr. Marsden's own life's blood. He told the writer of this preface that he could not stand more than an hour at a time of his work on it in the British Museum, as the diabolical nature spirit of the matter, which he was obliged to turn into English, made him positively ill. Mr. Marsden's connection with the Morning Post was not severed by his return to England and he was well enough to accept the post of special correspondent of that journal in the suite of His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, on his Empire tour. From this he returned with the Prince, apparently in much better health, but within a few days of his landing he was taken suddenly ill and died after a very brief illness. His sudden death is still a mystery." May this work be his crowning monument. In it he has performed an immense service to the English-speaking world. And there can be little doubt that it will take its place in the first rank of the English versions of the Protocols of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion. <coughs> Excuse me. So that is the background on Victor Marston. And there is not much else known about him except that he was a British writer born in June of 1866, who died at the relatively young age of 54 in October of 1920. The other translation of the Protocols, which we have available to us, is attributed to Boris Brassall, who was born in Ukraine in 1885. The following is from our presentation, The Protocols of Satan, Part 1 where it had spoken about a first book by Sergei Nihilus. And it says, However, another book by Sergei Alexander Nihilus, The Protocols and World Revolution, was translated into English and supposedly, as some sources refute the account, edited by Boris Brassall and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. The Nihilus book, from its second Russian edition published in 1905, contained a copy of the Protocols, and they were apparently the first version available in English, because the Marsden translation was evidently not published until after his death in 1923. Boris Brassov is a story in himself. He was a Russian lawyer who prosecuted a blood libel case against the Jews in 1912. He was an officer <coughs> in the Tsar's army during the First Great War, and was fortunate to have been sent on a mission to the United States, where he was during the Jewish takeover of Russia in October 1917, and where he remained thereafter, remaining a writer and publisher for several decades and writing several books against Soviet Socialism. So they are our two translators of the Protocols. Presenting the Protocols throughout the subsequent portions of this presentation, 
We will be following both of these translations. Although we may employ the Brassall edition as our primary source, that's kind of what we're leaning to at the moment. I'll know more as I compare the two further on. And that is because we think that the Brassall edition is the more polished of the two, in the literary sense. In any event, as we proceed, we will give careful attention to any significant differences between them. For our commentary, we will draw from the edition of the Protocols and World Revolution attributed to Brassall, which has an excellent second part which comments on the protocols at length, as well as from the international Jew and other historical sources. Of course, we hope to also offer sufficient of our own commentary to put the protocols into a proper perspective from our Christian identity worldview. We are going to close on this note, however. What if the protocols had never existed? And perhaps this is why the Jews made certain that the protocols existed. Because if they had not existed, perhaps we would be able to convince white Christians more easily that the Jews have purposely undermined our society, rather than spending endless hours debating over whether this document outlines their plans as a forgery, since the Jews would never want to reveal to us their plans in so haphazardly a manner. So, most white Christians, rather than learn about how the Jews have undermined our society, would argue endlessly that the protocols are only a forgery, repeating exactly what the Jews want them to repeat. So the existence of the protocols has certainly helped to advance the cause of Satan, which is outlined in the protocols. But we will present them anyway, as we hope to return to this subject next Sunday. I'm sorry, next Saturday. I'm already confused. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Mm -hmm.